Hi, I'm Chloe Dutchke and welcome to the SciRise Sessions. We're shining the light on entrepreneurship in cybersecurity and uncovering some of the most authentic stories from cybersecurity startup founders. SciRise is the Venture Accelerator program funded by NTT Global and Deakin University. Our guest for this episode is Peter Danahue. He's the co-founder and CEO of Secure Code Warrior, a platform that empowers developers to write secure code from the beginning. He's a founder we know well, always willing to give back to the cyber startup ecosystem. In this conversation, we chat about early customers, co-founder dynamics, and why it's lonely as a CEO. Just a heads up, the audio is a little clunky at times, but the wisdom Peter provides is absolutely top notch. Hi, Peter. Welcome. Always great to chat with you and very, very excited to get your story on the record for SciRise Sessions today. So thanks for making the time to chat with me. No worries. Glad to be here, Chloe. A little bit about you. So co-founder and CEO of Secure Code Warrior, you founded in 2015, currently have over 170 staff. You've secured over 50 million USD in funding. And I think a great place to start would be to touch on the genesis story of what is seemingly an overnight success. (laughs) And I laugh because it's obviously not. And I know the story. I know there's so much that's gone into the behind the scenes of growing and building Secure Code Warrior. But if we can just take a trip back to 2015 and touch on how and why Secure Code Warrior started. Yeah, I think we'll have to take a trip back to probably 2004, 2005 for that, because I think in the initial, I would say, 10, 15 years of my career, I was, uh, I was tasked to kind of find security holes into systems. And when I kind of did that for a long period of time, I figured out that a lot of those problems in those systems are not caused by, of course, the security people, not caused by the IT people, but very often kind of lead to problems in software. So uh, it took me a very long time to kind of realize that, like probably 10, 15 years that I felt, well, there's a bunch of people pointing out problems, but nobody's actually helping the people that need to kind of solve them. Now, and I think so 2013, 2014, we started to get ideas on, well, what can we actually do to help these uh, software developers? And I think with my background in the hacking community, with Brucon, with Capture the Flag, I knew that you can train people very easily using techniques like gamification, but also doing things hands-on. And I think that's kind of where an idea started to kind of sprout. I think, well, can we create something for developers that uh, it's not videos, it is fun, it is hands-on. And we, we kind of, in our, in our spare time, the weekends, we started kind of building proof of concept. I started talking with people about the idea, uh, but it wasn't until I think 2015 where we basically said, okay, let's, let's, let's quit our jobs. There's something real there. And let's basically jump into this story and, and, and work full time. Um, so it, it's really been based upon what we've done in, in our whole careers and getting frustrated with the fact that nobody was fixing these software security flaws that we started to think about a solution. How can we basically make something for developers that they really love? And how did you know that that was the right time to do it? Were there any key indicators that spoke to you where you were looking at the market or what was happening within organizations that really said, we need to, we need to act now? So I, I would love to say it was based upon a strategy and analytics and data, but it wasn't. It was pure gut feel. What I, what I did see happening, because in my consulting role that I was before, uh, we worked with big enterprises and we saw that they were all kind of moving very quickly from waterfall development where you got six, nine, 12 months to kind of build projects where they attach security at the end. And they were quickly moving to, uh, to agile, which means we are releasing two, three times a day. And I think it was that realization where people are shifting the way on how they, they develop that security basically broke. Like product security in that move, anyone going from waterfall into agile, it basically breaks. Um, and I think that's the point where I really say, wait a minute, if that breaks, like how can, how can one security person in a company, how can they scale to a thousand developers and basically help them with every single release, every single day and make sure that's secure? 
And uh, I knew that all the classic tools didn't, wouldn't really work. So that's why we started to think about, well, we should basically do it differently. And we should push skills to developers and we should push and help them basically write software more secure from the start. So it was, it was gut feel. It was talking to a lot of people, basically. There was, there, was, there was no real strategy behind it, I must say. Well, I would say that talking to a, a lot of people is a bit strategic. There are plenty of, you know, plenty of entrepreneurs who might start out and have the great idea. I see that there's a gap in the market, but also fail to talk to people. So I think that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good note there to, um, to have those conversations. Did you have an initial target market in mind? So you've seen the problem. Did you go after a certain vertical or, you know, were you targeting uh, um, the engineers or the top of the organization? How did that go? Yeah, well, I, like now I know I should have looked at what's a total addressable market and all those kind of terms and things. <laughs> uh, back then I didn't. So back then it was like, hey, where do we think we can get traction? And, and because of my network, my professional network, was mostly in the banking industry. It, it was the most logical place to go and, and find those very early, early adopter customers. And um, because, because of my professional network being in the banking industry, that means you had a certain level of credibility, you had a certain level of trust, like I was teaching for the Sands Institute uh, as an instructor on how to break into systems, create credibility. I was doing consulting with those banks, so they kind of knew that when you hired my team or you went in, you, you, they, they kind of trusted that we would deliver. And I think it's the combination of credibility and the trust that some people in banking have uh, that helped us getting our first early adopter customer in that industry. Now, we then got a second customer in Australia in the same industry. Like we first signed up Macquarie Bank and then we started signing up CBA Bank. And then I started realizing like, wait a minute, there's, there's obviously something going on here because there's a need in this industry. They are driven by compliance. They have lots of software developers and they're hiring even more. They're all moving to agile. And that's when I started realizing that there's actually a bunch of checkboxes that you can run through to figure out who's your ideal customer. And at that point in time, for us, it was banking and finance. So we kind of went after the ones in Australia <coughs> because of my heritage in Europe. I also had some connections back in Europe. So I immediately went to go after some of the European banks as well. And that immediately pulled us into the U.S. as well, uh, into some of the U.S. banks. So it kind of forced us like that, that, that vertical specific focus forced us to actually be global from, I think this was mostly 2016. So it was a year in our startup. Yeah, that's very, very early on to have that global mindset, which we might come back to a bit later. It's a really important aspect of building any successful startup, especially in cybersecurity where, you know, <laughs> security knows no borders. So um, I'd just like to touch on some of the characteristics that your early adopters had. So you talked about Macquarie and then CBA. Obviously, your networks got you in there initially and the credibility that you'd established um, both in your kind of personal, professional journey. What were some of the things beyond that that really helped get your foot in the door, securing whether it was a POC and then like the following contracts, what were the next steps and what did they, what were the characteristics of those first relationships? Yeah, so I think it comes back to, I learned a lot out of conversations with a lot of people out of banking. Like I know my first conversation I had with Secure Code, about Secure Code Warrior or about the concept because it wasn't named Secure Code Warrior that back then, I don't know what we named it, like developer labs or something like that. But the first conversation was with a, uh, a CISO in, uh, in Europe from a bank. And by talking to enough people in that industry, I think you started to recognize patterns of the same problems that they were kind of having. So I knew that when I was talking to Macquarie and CBA, if I just repeated some of the problems that another sizer was telling me, and you're kind of repeating the same thing, you, you kind of start to give the impression that you actually know about the problem. While to be honest, mm. you don't. Like you, you don't have any solution, you've got an idea. But I think it's, it's that trust building that was, that was very important. And I think the trust led to a free proof of concept, like saying, hey, do you have some people that want to check out our product? We can do a demo. And we're, we're really looking for feedback. So the, the, the thing on how we went into those customers was not saying, hey, 
here's a POC, please pay for it, please buy it. It was more like, look, I'm, I'm looking for a flagship customer that can help me refine and build the product. And uh, we, we basically did a demo to them. We explained them our vision. And back then, like 2015, our product was really bad. Like I can say that now. <laughs> um, probably nobody that starts a company is proud of the product that he made in the first six months. And neither were we, but we had a, we had a vision what we wanted to achieve. And we sold that vision. And because we had that credibility on delivery and trust, I think Macquarie probably started believing or seeing that, okay, well, I see the product, it's kind of half-baked, it doesn't always work, but I, I trust Peter and his team because they've always kind of delivered in the past. And, uh, and I think that the, in the first demos, we asked for a lot of feedback. We, we sat down with the developers, we really wanted to know what do you think about the product? Not the good stuff, like tell us what is bad. How can we make this thing better? And I think at a certain moment, we were, we were doing a, a free pilot of probably 30 to 40 developers, but that were not all in Sydney. They were spread out of Australia, so we couldn't really talk to them very easily. There was no Zoom that was very popular at that time. So we started to build in a little widget into our product, uh, which is called UserSnap, where if somebody has feedback, they can just click on the button, it automatically takes a screenshot, they can put in some notes and it gets sent to us. And I think when we enabled that thing, we, we literally got like 10 tickets every single day of developers that were kind of saying, hey, I don't understand this, this is bad, this is, this is really crap, I don't like this, this is too hard. Now developers are a very difficult audience where they're very smart people, they're very, very critical on things. So we literally got flooded with tickets and what, what we've done there, we, we basically summarized the, the bigger picture issues that they were telling us, like, hey, this is way too hard. And we went back to Macquarie and kind of presenting, saying, hey, like, this is the feedback we've gotten. And we really quickly responded onto fixing those things. And it's one of the reasons why we built the hinting system into our platform, because in a certain user group, we got the feedback saying security is way too hard. Like, mm -hmm. we, we don't understand it. We're not security people. And we started building a hinting system that they can always find the answer. And those are some of the learnings we've had from really talking to our, our first initial user base. And then I think uh, by luck, by accident, by opportunity, it was end of financial year at, uh, at Macquarie. And I think uh, the person we were talking to had, had a bit of, of budget left over. And they basically came saying, hey, like we, we, we actually, our developers are giving really good feedback. Uh, we, we want to kind of buy a license for X amount of developers. And I think that, that was the first time we we're like, ooh, somebody really wants to pay us money for this? Like, this is great. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the moment that we had our first early adopter paying customer, which is a, a big breakthrough for, for any startup going from unpaid and doing everything from free to kind of, oh, somebody, somebody wants to give us uh, some money so we can actually buy sandwiches and food and, and, and drinks during the day. So, uh, yeah, that, that was the, and from there on, we kind of repeated the same model with the next customer and the next customer. But we always, those next customers were always in the circle of your, your professional personal networks. And that's why I think mm -hmm. it's important to talk to a lot of people because you start to kind of building those relationships and, and that's where you're going to sell your first product. Like it's, it's the early adopters, it's your friends, it's the friends of friends, it's friends from advisors. It, it's not going to be a random company that you pick out. It's really going to be in, in that initial circle of friends where you have to look, your, look for your early adopter customers. There's so much I love about that explanation of how you tackled that early on with Macquarie. First of all, I love empowering the, um, the engineers with the, with the screenshot and <laughs> feedback mechanism. I can absolutely just imagine how, <laughs> how that would have um, really empowered them to to help you refine the product. But what I love about that is you're getting their investment and, it's, and bringing them along the journey with you. And I think that whether by design or default, that that approach is really important to look at your early customers like a design partner helping you refine the product and being alongside you in the journey versus you know feeling like the product needs to be perfectly packaged and refined and you present it to the customer and they purchase it and that kind of different um like it's more transactional that way and I think there's a lot to be learned about being alongside 
your customer for the journey. You have those conversations, you get people on board, they become advocates for you. And eventually, like you said, you know, they'll have a bit of budget extra and throw some sandwich money your way. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, the interesting thing in our case is that our, our buyer, which is typically the size or the security person, is actually not our end user because the end mm. user is the developer. So, and we still actually have that user snap uh, widget in our product today. Like we still get uh, hundreds of tickets through of people that are giving feedback on our UI, on buttons, on the content. And I, I distinctly remember at the beginning, there was this one person uh, from a customer, a potential customer in Switzerland. And he was like sending every single day four or five tickets, but with really negative feedback. Like, oh, I don't like this and this is bad. And I was like, at the point that I started to be a little bit frustrated saying, oh, this guy, like what, what the hell does he know? So I set up a meeting with him and and the first thing he said was like, I absolutely love your product. And I'm like, what? You've just sent like 50 bad tickets criticizing how bad the product is or, or the, the things that, that are wrong. And the first thing he says to me in the call is, look, I, I love your product. And, like, and then I kind of realized is that the fact that he puts in time mm. to submit and to write, regardless of what he writes, is kind of showing that he's, he's bought into it. He likes mm. it, but he wants to kind of make it better. And from that moment onwards, I started sending people T-shirts when they kind of submit a lot of tickets because I'm like, wait a minute, that's a potential advocate. That could be somebody that is going to bring out the message to all the other developers. So with that guy, we just send them a swag packet T-shirt uh, at that time and a sticker. And, and it kind of turns your, uh, the people that are sending your feedback, turns them into, uh, into advocates for your, for your product. So it's something that I think every founder should embrace, like get as much, much feedback as you can from, uh, from the people that are using your product. Yeah, it's a great reminder. If, if they were neutral or didn't care, if they didn't give a shit about what you were doing, you wouldn't hear from them. The fact that they are investing their time and energy into helping you shape the product is everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Further to that, when you're actively taking on so much feedback about the product, especially in those early days, when we look at product to market fit and, and kind of making sure as a company what you're developing has some kind of focus and intent behind it, how do you take on all the feedback that is incoming and know what to pick up and what to leave? How, how did you look at that strategically to keep the focus or did you? Well, the correct answer would say you need a product function and you need product manager to kind of that analyzes that and puts it in teams. Uh, the real answer is we didn't have that at all. I, I didn't put a product layer in place until probably about a year and a half ago, which was one of my mistakes. But anyway, there's uh, initially, we literally, as, a, as the, the team of founders, we went through all the tickets, like every single one of them. We, we had them linked like straight into a Slack channel. So we saw all the feedback live coming in and we basically read them every single one of them and then kind of uh, figured out, okay, which one do we believe is valid and which one do we kind of say, hey, that's, that's probably a nice to have. So we started categorizing them into really critical, really important, and kind of then start selecting, well, we only have like three pair of hands, like wh what do we do first? Uh, and then it was thinking, well, which, which is the one that's going to get us a deal in? Like wh what, what mm -hmm. changes can we do with the product that is going to get this to a sell or to, to have somebody pay us money. Uh, and that's kind of how we initially kind of prioritized because at that time we were like cash is king. Like we need to, we mm -hmm. need to be able to buy our sandwiches next week. So <laughs> let's, fo let's focus on having somebody paying us. And uh, so, yeah, it, there was no methodology behind it. There was no product people, product board, all that kind of professional way on how to kind of find product marketing. We didn't have that. It was all based upon uh, gut feel from a bunch of geeks Gut feel from a bunch of geeks. I love, I love that summary <laughs> of the co-founding team, yeah. which probably moves us to the next point because having heard um, you chat about the Secure Code Warrior story a number of times, Peter, and each time, might I add, I learn something new. It's, so, it's fascinating to me. But one aspect I really love to hear you chat about is the humans behind the business. So whether that is in hiring people or looking at brand values or whatever it might be, there's always 
you seem to circle back to this, that it's about the people. And for the co-founding team, you're, you're quite a robust, like you've got quite a robust number of co-founders for a startup. And I know in your time that that, that team has changed and shifted. What are some of the lessons you've learned about working alongside co-founders? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's really um, interesting story because originally there were, there were only two co-founders. Um, there mm-hmm. was me and somebody in the UK, but I kind of, we started the company with four or five employees that were all there from day one, which were former people that I've kind of worked with. Uh, so over time, I said, well, why am I a co-founder and why don't they have the label co-founder? Because they, they were there on day one, which was the day after Australia Day in 2015. That's when we are kind of all started. So over time, we kind of added those initial employees to that co-founding group because I think they've, they've kind of started the company with me from, uh, from day one. Now, uh, what I've learned from that experience is that it's really important to look at uh, who your co-founders are, the personalities, and start clearly defining your swim lanes on what a certain person is going to do because initially it's, it's a democracy, right? You discuss mm-hmm. everything with everybody, but at a certain point in time when you, when you, when you go, uh, get a little bit bigger and I would say we were about a year, year and a half in our journey, democracies don't work anymore because you, you, you can't decide everything from everyone. There's, there's finance, there's cash, there's marketing, there's sales, there's product. And running that as a democracy doesn't work anymore. So you need to start clearly defining what I call now swim lanes. Like, hey, mm-hmm. Colin, like you're gonna, you and Job, you're going to focus on, on building this project. And I'll do the architecture. And Fanama will focus on everything else from sales to marketing. Um, that's why she was called Chief Awesome, because we couldn't say she's head of sales or head of marketing or head of office atmosphere or mm-hmm. whatever. So she did, she did everything. That's why we call her Chief Awesome. And I think me with my f- former co-founder in, in the UK, the original one, we, uh, we started to have swim lanes that were running basically on top of each other, where mm. uh, we were thinking, well, I make this decision. No, he makes that decision. So it started to kind of run into, uh, into a lot of conflicts uh, because we didn't have the swim lane. Like he, he thought his scope was from A to Z and, and my, my scope was that as well. And I think uh, that, that led a lot to, uh, to conflict. And if you don't, uh, we were remote, like I was in Australia, he mm. was in the UK. Then of course, that prevents you a lot from communicating, for solving problems and things kind of frustrations, they bubble up and they go up and up and up. And if you don't handle that very, uh, very good, it, it is going to lead to, uh, to a founder breakup, founder split up. And it's at that moment that you really get to know who the person is. And I think the mistakes I've kind of made is if I look at the founding group and I see Colin and Jab and Falam and Matthias, and you look at the values, you look at their background, you look at the, what, what, what they've done previously in their career, you can see that these are all very smart, humble people that always have like their, their heart in the business. And I think my, uh, my previous co-founder, like uh, I, I've known him for like 10 years, but looking at his history, he always got kicked out of a job. He always got like in, in situations where he was pushed out. And at the moment, I, at that moment, I was very blind to that situation. Like I was like, whatever, there's all, all good reasons for it. But you start kind of seeing a pattern that I blindly ignored at the beginning, which I shouldn't have. And I think that's why I think if you look at your co-founding team, really get to know the person, not in good times, but figure out like how do they behave in, in bad times? How do they invest in relationship? What are their values? Because I think that is really core to, to you and your co-founding team is making sure you're, you're kind of aligned in those values, but definitely work on the swim lanes because that is going to cause issues with every co-founding team. Uh, this, this swim lane is a, is a, is a big problem. So everybody kind of needs to know, hey, you're the CEO and you do finances and you make those decisions and you make those decisions and we leave each other the freedom to do that. And if we don't agree, we'll speak up and we'll, we'll say it because you don't want to create an atmosphere or a culture where people don't speak up their opinion. But ultimately, it's he or she that makes the decision and that has the ultimate responsibility. And I think if you don't make that clear in the beginning, uh, that often leads to, uh, to disasters. And in my case, I think uh, many people predicted that SEW would fall apart. Like when we had the founder split, mm-hmm. 
um, there were initial uh, initial advisors and investors that said, Peter, don't do that. Like you, you're going to ruin the company. Your company is dead if you do that. But I, I was kind of stuck into a situation where we would be dead on the longer term because this relationship would would never function anymore, or we would be dead on the short term because of the impact on. So it was a very hard decision. Uh, where again, I sat down with the with the co-founding team with the initial employees. And we said, well, do we really want to do that? Do we want to kick out one of our co-founders? And and what what does that kind of uh, what does it kind of mean for everyone? So it was a really hard decision, very frustrating. I think I, I lost half of my hair in that year. Um, but but we now we now all look back to that situation and we're like, mm. it's the best thing we've ever done. Like the, yeah. the 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 moment that distraction because it is a distraction. Like co-founder disputes are big distractions for the firm. From the moment that's gone we just focused and we kept growing 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 really fast and you, you you can pull up our revenue numbers and you can actually see like the moment that i'm talking about this story you can see the flatness from our numbers and what happened after that kind of that distraction was gone so for us it was the best decision we've we've uh, we've taken thank you for sharing that i know that it must not have been an easy decision to make but i love that you've reflected and, and can share that in hindsight, it was not only a great move for the team and the team culture and for probably your well-being, but also made business sense. And I, we hear this often about founding relationships being like a marriage. And I think once you're at that point where you see that it, that relationship isn't working, um, you can't unsee it. And I think, yeah, a real testament to you and the co-founders too to make that hard decision to buckle in for the ride and be like, well, this is where it needs to go for the long-term success. And, and the lessons obviously in hindsight that, you know, you can look back at someone's history and what they value, not only professionally, but personally, and get some key indicators of whether it's going to work or not uh, are good, but it takes the hard lessons, the hardship to really learn those things sometimes. Yeah. yeah and I think it, it, it also brought us closer together as a, as yeah. the remaining co-founder team saying, oh, we we went to war together and like we're we're now a band of brothers, which I think mm. is uh, is really hard to kind of break. Like uh, um, uh, Job, Fatima, Matthias, like we're all still there together in uh, in Colum. We're all together still in in that founding team, and I think that it's kind of brought us together and really bonded us. And we know, hey, hey, we survived that. Like we we can survive everything. Like we whatever happens in our company, we we've went through the worst already, so we we can nail everything else. I love that. And, you know, that's a spirit of camaraderie that we've witnessed too in, you know, meeting with you and Fatima and, and Jarp and the team. And I think that's really evident. How does that co-founding dynamic and the values that you all kind of live by, um, both professionally and personally, how does that filter down to the team and team culture and hiring? Yeah, so... Um... I would say the first year I didn't pay too much attention to that. Um, I, I, I knew we had similar values as a co-founding team. Like we were very diverse in race, in religion, in gender, in, in food preferences, like everyone had its own thing. And we created a culture where everybody had to kind of speak up his opinion. Like we, we were actively encouraging speaking up if you don't agree with something. And I think it just, the, ne- the next layer of, of employees we hired they started to kind of absorb similar things. Like we, we, uh, we invite them to kind of discuss, we invite them to get engaged, we invite them to look to the world and, in, uh, as a broader place and care about diversity. And I think that happened and again with the next layer of, of employees. So we suddenly realized that we were at about 30 to 40 employees. We didn't have any values like Atlassian had, like the, the fancy ones. And we're like, hmm, we probably should do something about this because I noticed that the more we were hiring and the faster we were hiring, we started hiring the wrong people that we had to kind of remove after two months, three months. And we started wondering like, why is that? Why is that person, when they come into our business, why, why, why isn't it clicking? Why isn't it working? And then I started realizing, oh, it's, it's, about, it's about their, their values. Like they, they didn't display humbleness. Like the whole company is humble. You have 40 mm-hmm. people that are really humble. And I get you, that one person that comes in and he kind of thinks he's, he's, he's the best person and the smartest person in the room. 
And of course that causes conflict. So we started figuring out, okay, humble, this is definitely one of our, our values. And we kind of started to write down what mm-hmm. characterizes a, an, an, an employee uh, within Secure Code Warrior. And what I didn't want is to have like a stereotype, because if you then hire all the stereotypes, you're exactly the same. So we didn't want that either. We wanted to kind of identify values, but still make sure that we went out and looked for diversity and looked for uh, people that are, that are thinking differently. So from that moment onwards, I said, well, I want to interview every single person that we hire in our company. You, you can imagine that uh, our people and culture team was like, oh, no, you're going to be a bottleneck. You can't do that. Like, it's yeah. not going to go work. But still today, we're 170 people. Last night, I did an interview of a half an hour with the next person we're going to hire. Because mm-hmm. um, th- there's probably two reasons for it. I, I want to have a final sanity culture check. Like, I want to have a conversation with that person not about his references or the skills or the background, but I want to know like, what do they do in their lives? What, what gives them passion? What are they interested in? It? Like, are they risk takers? How, do they have mm-hmm. a family? Where do they live? So I want to know the person a little bit more to kind of figure out whether this person would fit or not. The second reason why I do it, and I've never told this to anyone, but um, I'm, an in, I'm an introvert. Like I'm a geek. Mm-hmm. I'm an introvert that kind of learned or taught himself to be a little bit more extrovert. That's why I can mm-hmm. do podcasts and presentations and so on. But I'm, I'm by, by nature, I'm still very introvert. And the, my, my biggest, scariest thing is coming into an office and not knowing who that person is that I've, like, that's working in my company mm-hmm. and not knowing anything about that person. So the second reason why I want to do those interviews is to actually, the next time I come into the office, that I actually know the name of the person and I know something about their personality. Uh, like I know there's two people in our company and they do dragon boat racing. I've never heard of dragon boat racing, but they, they kind of share that to me in their interview process. Like, and there's, there's like this, I try to remember a, a personality detail of every single employee in the company because it's, mm. it, it made me feel less awkward when I go in that I, I actually know this person. Like we, we've, we've touched on a, on, on, on personal subject. So uh, today I still do it. People say that I won't be able to do it once we kind of hit 300 people, that is going to be impossible, but, uh, let's see. Until now, it's been working great for us. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I love, yes, culture's sense check, but also for your own, like, <laughs> for your own kind of personal need, just so you can walk into the office or be on a Zoom and know who that person is, where 170 staff, it's, it's a lot, Peter. Like, that's, that's not nothing to be sneezed at. That's a lot of people to be managing and, and, to, and, you know, and you're just continuing to grow. So yes, I look yeah. forward to connecting when you're at the 300 person mark and see how you're going with those interviews. And Cause it sounds I, like it's necessary for you. I actually made a bet with, uh, with, with, uh, with the leadership in the company that I, I still think today I can say everyone's like, I know the, the first name of everyone in the company. And just because I had that interaction with everybody that I hired and it's very rarely that I'm going to stop a hire. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I probably only did it uh, two or three times in, in the last uh, three, four years that I said, look, that conversation really didn't go well. Like I have bad vibes, like my, my cultural radar is sending me signals that there's something wrong. But I always said, like, if you want to hire that person, like it's your decision, like, because I'm not a hiring manager, you need to work with that team, with that person in your team. But I'm just telling you that there's a few red flags here. And some of them have kind of said, well, you know what, Peter? I appreciate your, your opinion, but I'm still going to mm-hmm. hire that person, which is fine. Uh, and some of them kind of said, well, okay, I can see that as well, or we need to dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, and we've kind of said, well, we're not going to process or continue with the hiring. Mm. Yeah, and it's important to remain true to the value system too. So if there are things that are red flags for you as someone who has been there from the start and seen and experienced, you know, the importance of having people around you who, you know, fit value system wise. I appreciate what you're saying and, and um, admire what you're doing in terms of diversity as well in, in, in hiring, but the value system, like you said, um, humility and that kind of thing is important. For- that, I don't, th- don't think passion, um, mm. like if, if you go through six or seven interviews with the company and then you arrive with me and let's say you're an engineer, and then if, you, if I ask the question, have you ever used the product? And the answer is no. To me, that's a red flag. 
<laughs> right? And, and yeah. you'd be surprised. You'd just be really surprised that how many times that kind of pops up that, yeah, I looked at your website and I can explain what you do, but I've never kind of Dug created a trial account or actually used the product. And to me, like, well, are you just leaving your old job or do you really want to come yeah. and work for us? Like, do you, are you passionate about the problem? And I've had the complete opposite side as well, right? Where people are like, oh, I've played every single challenge. I've did that. I've called my, I called my friends and this, like that were completely passionate. I'm like, okay, that's the person we need. Like somebody that really tries to understand what we're doing and has called his friends and people that he know in the industry. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're looking for. On um, the idea of the importance of values. So just to shift gears slightly, bring it back to more of a brand marketing perspective. I know from your story and also because one of the guests we've previously had on the podcast is Eddie Shee, who I know you've got a great both personal and professional relationship with and his um, partner in crime, (laughs) Carolyn Betts, um, who's also done some great work with Secure Code Warrior around brand and marketing and brand values. And when we're looking at early stage entrepreneurship, especially in cybersecurity, brand and marketing, rightly so, is not always top of mind and a number one focus in the early days. It does need to be at some stage. And I know from your experience, that was a pivotal kind of change for Secure Code Warrior. What's your advice for early stage founders in approaching brand and marketing in a way that makes sense to do when you're still, you know, refining the product, looking at customer acquisition? Yeah, so I'll uh, don't do it as, as, as we've done. Let's put it like that. Like in the beginning, like in the early years, uh, the Colin and Jav and Falamad and I all kind of worked within the previous company. The perception we had on marketing or the marketing function was that, oh, these are the, the guys that are creating brochures with vaporware on it with a product that doesn't really exist and go out and try and sell it. So we had a really, really bad vibe on marketing people. So we, we didn't believe in marketing at all. Like I was like, ah, forget about it. Like we focus on sales and product and, and things will work out. Um, and you're right. Then we've kind of, um, we've kind of met, uh, met Eddie and Carolyn. And I think, uh, especially Carolyn, less so Eddie, but especially Carolyn has really opened up my eyes on what marketing can do for your company. Because I realized when I started listening and talking to our initial 20 to 30 employees that, everybody was telling a different story to our customers. Like they, mm. were, they, were, they were creating different brand perceptions with those customers. Um, they were, they, like we weren't uh, using the same pitch text. We weren't using the same storytelling. We weren't kind of depicting our values in the same way. And it wasn't until kind of Carolyn brought us all into a room and started really picking our brains on, what identity is Secure Code Warrior? Who do you want to be? Where do you want to be? Like, like doing that whole brand works or brand vision thing, I think was, was pivotal for us because the, the, the output of all this was like, hey, here's your brand vision, here's your company vision and all written down. And I was looking at that and I thought, well, we should just all learn that by heart. We should be able to kind of, everyone should be able to verbalize our mission. And that's the words. And those are the specific words we need to go and use to our customers. And, and uh, I think what we started seeing is when, when we did that, when we kind of pushed those messages out to our employees, everybody was kind of repeating the same words to our customers, repeat, repeating the same story to our customer. And we started having those keywords in our content on our website and in our brochures and in our sales decks and our pitch decks. And that creates a level of consistency where everybody is singing the same song and looking in the same direction. So, uh, so yes, it, uh, we've kind of shifted from marketing is just waste of money mm-hmm. to something which is really is aligning the company on that's where we're going. That's the story we're kind of uh, selling. So, uh, yeah, I, I became a believer instead of uh, remaining a disbeliever. I love that. And, yes, I did lead you directly into that story knowing this would be the outcome. But it's shifting that mindset where marketing is not just a piece of paper and brochures. It's not even just your website. It is how you communicate. And I think there's absolute, the value you've outlined here too, which perhaps isn't necessary when you're a, you know, one or two co-founding team initially, but 
the value is in the alignment of the words and the message and the story you're telling. And that can be in conversation with your design partners or potential customers or whoever it might be, as much as it is with how you speak about the product internally or how it appears on the website. It's everything. And like you said, the consistency is important. Um, you want that message to land in the same way each time. Yeah, I would actually say in, in the phase where you're one or two people and you're going to 10 people, I think that's that's where Squiddle, we probably did it when we were 20 to 25, mm. but I think in the initial one to 10, because it's not only your internal employees, but it's the contractors you work with, the designers you work with, the mm-hmm. outsourcing company. If you could provide them with your brand vision written down on paper saying, this is what we're doing, these are the words we're using, um, this is how it kind of needs to feel and look and all that kind of stuff it helps them a lot. Like it gives them direction of, of what your company is, what they're doing. So I, I, I would say somewhere in that, in that journey from one to 10 employees, it's, uh, you better do it early than kind of wait until, until it's too late. And I know that, I mean, we were just chatting before we were recording about the fact that you're revisiting this now. So it's been three years since you first did that mission, vision, brand values work. Revisiting it now because you know, things change and grow and evolve. And it's important for people to realize that the brand grows and evolves too. So as much as it's not going to shift dramatically, it's not something that is then going to, going to be set in stone that you can't, you know, refine and iterate on as you go forward. Why is this something that you're revisiting now? Well, because we've, we've been now five years in that journey. Our, our previous brand vision was done uh, roughly in 2017. The market's mm-hmm. changed. Mm. Uh, the competitors changed, the the bigger goals we have changed because I think back then we were thinking, hey, if we're going to be a 10 million ARR company, joy, like we've made it. And now we're like, wait a minute, we, we've grown this from zero to 10. Maybe we can grow from 10 to 100. So mm-hmm. your, your, your goals as a founding team are changing. And that means you have to have bigger ideas, more ambitious ideas, more things you kind of want to do. And uh, yeah, you, 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 it's not that we're suddenly going to change or vision and saying we're, go- we're going to start selling shoes or, or something like that. It's like, no, but it is important to kind of refine saying, well, wait a minute, we're, we're not only about learning and educating and building skills with developers. We, we've built plugins and integrations and like it, it's about embedding ourselves into the whole developer uh, life cycle. So that kind of your, your vision evolves for your product. And as a result, you kind of need to redo these exercises, uh, I would say, every few years. One thing I have found particularly interesting about your fundraising experience is the difference in the size of the rounds from your Series A to your Series B. And I know your Series B closed December last year. Is that, I've got that right, I think. Yeah. And can you give us the number of what your Series B was? So it was roughly about 50 million US. Uh, That Mm. was your Series B or series A was about three and a half million. So we, we, uh, we basically, what, uh, 12, 12, 12 or 13 next door around. So it is a big change. And I've, I, I have a golden rule that I would say every founder needs to know is that don't raise more money than your revenue. Um, mm. and, and probably for Australian startups, it's a really good rule to have in the U S things work differently. You basically mm-hmm. have a, a sheet of paper and, uh, if you can communicate well, you get a few millions, even if you have zero revenue and they, they grow very differently. They raise a lot of money and then revenue kind of comes after. In Australia, it's different. The, the, mm. the ecosystem is different. The fundraising is different. And that's why we kind of said, you know what? Like we, we can kind of work on the cash that we are getting from our customers because our business model was paid 12 months up front. We had some very generous early banks in australia that said well you know what like we, we'll pay you three years front like woo um that was great Amazing. for us because yeah. it, it gives you a cash injection so we said well as long as we can kind of kind of use our cash to kind of grow we don't really need to kind of r- raise too much money and uh, uh our series a like our revenue was about in f- i think five million uh in uh, us dollars um back then and that's when we first did our three and a half million fundraise um, right. So I kept or kept our, rev- or, or, or fundraising way less than, than the revenue. And I think it puts you in a really powerful position where you don't have to give 
a, a give away much from your company because you have a value that's based upon 5 million ARR and you just raise a, raise a little bit of money. But that little bit of money can make a big difference where you suddenly don't have to choose between which of those 10 roles are we going to hire? Is it going to be a mm-hmm. salesperson, an engineer, a marketing person? You can actually say, you know what, let's hire five of them because we now have enough capital to basically pre-invest and make sure kind of our revenue grows. Um, and then I think we, we, we went from about 5 million, we kind of doubled that, uh, we were at about 10 million. And I think at that point in time, we started thinking about, well, should we do another round? And I think initially I went down and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for 15 million. Like we went for three and a half to 15 million, which is already mm-hmm. uh, uh, reasonable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a normal growth, but I think, yeah. um, we uh well like our revenue kept on growing and we were like well we don't really need to raise we can still grow on our cash we kind of we were pushing out our fundraising more and more and then at a certain point in time we we ran into uh, uh a golden tax and cisco and and uh and, and ports point and i think they were they were really interested in us in our story like they saw developers they saw security they saw the traction we were having uh, signing up Verizon, Telstra, Salesforce, PayPal, like all these big names, like, ooh, an enterprise company out of Australia that is running globally, that is, that is having half of its revenue in the US, no real competition in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they kind of said, okay, we, 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 we kind of want, we want to get it. We want to, we want to find a way on how to work with you. So we, we went from 15 million to say, well, you know what? We, we can probably do it 20 or 25 million. Like it, it will allow us to take a few bets. Or our size around was kind of growing. And, and I thought, well, back then in 2019, there was fears of the global economy, right? We all thought, oh, there's going to be an next GFC. There's going to be a crisis. Um, mm. And we're like, hmm, if that happens, mm-hmm. we better have some cash in, in, in our pockets because that means we'll have to survive for one or two years as a startup. So let's, let's add another chunk of money on there. And, uh, and we thought, well, if the GFC or something like that's going to happen, there's also opportunities to, to buy smaller companies. So let's basically do a little bit chunk even more. So our round went to kind of from 15 million to, okay, uh, backup, backup contingency. And let's, let's see. And I think evaluations kind of worked out the right people the right partners kind of worked out and and i think that's why i kind of broke my own golden rule to saying well don't hire or don't get more uh, more funding than your revenue i still think it's a great golden rule but sometimes uh, the situations kind of you have to break that rule i think now it looks like a very smart decision because it looks very <laughs> smart and i and i do kind of think perhaps you were the oracle did you know uh, that this was going to be a shit show not not, not at all we, we we were betting on a financial crisis not not on a covid crisis um oh. but but it, it did kind of play out because during that crisis we 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 or pre the crisis we had conversations with smaller startups company adversary in iceland like brilliant uh, 10 people brilliant technology really good guys and I think during COVID, like it, it would have been really hard. And, and we said, okay, you know what? We have the cash. There's an opportunity, great product. We're basically going to uh, acquire an Icelandic company. Like that's probably one of the tips I would give. Never buy a company, which is at the furthest point on the world uh, from Sydney. Uh, but it all worked out. Like uh, we were actually releasing the, the full integration next week. Uh, it's going oh, to fabulous. become public. And we've, we've fully integrated their product into our platform. Uh, in roughly about six or seven months. Uh, so that's been really great. And I think the fact that we had a bit of cash reserve um, mm-hmm. made our employees and staff feel more comfortable during the COVID crisis as well, because it's not that we had a runway of two months or three months. No, we actually had a runway of roughly two years. So we said, well, we're not going to make people redundant. We're not going to fire anyone. We're just going to slow down hiring. We've got two years, like, this is never going to take more than six months. That's what we said. Basically, in yeah. February, we thought, oh, by the end of the year, we will all be gone. Um, but, uh, but basically, it gave us a level of comfort that mm. we, could, we could survive this crisis. We had enough cash in the bank to survive this, uh, this thing. I imagine that the security that comes with that means that you have more breathing room to make smart decisions and to give yourself time to really evaluate, okay, well, 
you know, scenario plan. If this happens, then we can do X, Y, and Z. Or yeah, it still makes business sense to go f- like go forward with this acquisition of the Icelandic company, whatever it might be. It gives you yeah. breathing room. Because there, there were some people uh, that were kind of saying, oh, you're crazy, like buying a company, like we're going to spend a few millions buying a company while there's a crisis. And I'm like, you know what? Like we can, like it's not, mm. it's not that we're going to be bankrupt. Like we've calculated really well and said, Let, let's take the bet. Um, and, uh, and, and for us, it's kind of worked out. So it does give you a, a level of comfort where you can take risks. And we, we said, let's, let's not fully stop hiring. Let's, because we, we needed to hire about 70 people um, back in yeah. February. And we said, well, you know what? Let's down select what are the most critical roles that will have an impact this year. So we kind of down selected to a few and said, well, let's go and hire those persons and let's put the, the rest of it on, on, the, on the back burner. Yeah, fabulous. Wow. And I think the lesson from that, because I mean, there will be some circumstances where founders or startups have to get on the fundraising train ahead of really healthy ARR. And so I think the lesson that we can glean from your experience too is that just have enough buffer with cash as much as you can, you know, and, and to give yourself room to make the smart decisions because, yeah, it's not always going to be possible, but the last thing you want is to be operating with only a month or two of runway. Yeah, there, there, is, there is a fine balance between take as much cash as you can and give as much control away to somebody else. And I think you, you really have to know your math on, well, where can I maximize both where we don't give up too much shareholding, we don't give up too much board seats, and where we still kind of maximize the, the amount of, of cash we kind of raise. And like where, wherever that line is, it's probably going to be different for everyone in the company uh, or, or every startup founder. But it is an interesting balance to how much do I give up for how much cash do I really need to survive and, and how much cash do I need to survive and take risks. You talk about the role of CEO being a lonely one. When did you realize it was lonely? <laughs> well, when you kind of realize that there are things that you can't really talk about with your uh, co-founders because they all have functions in the company and maybe there is something with their boss and you have struggles with their boss, you can't really go and, and tell one of the co-founders about those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you, like you very often run into uh, 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 the, the most difficult problems always kind of come to you um, yeah. and, uh, and you very often don't know like where do I get to go for advice like how, how do I solve this and you can't really talk with your staff you can't really talk with your, your leadership about certain problems everything which is fundraising or acquisition offers and all that kind of stuff you're not going to start talking with your employees or your leadership team saying hey we got an acquisition offer what do we do like those are subjects mm-hmm. that that uh, yeah, that kind of feel that you are, you have two teams. You have your your board as a team. You have your company as a team, and there are subjects that you can't talk about with with both of those parties. So it does put you kind of in, into a into a lonely situation where I think you you have to surround yourself with ex operators, people that have done it before. And I think in in my situation, like Eddie, she has been instrumental in this company, uh, gu- guiding me to 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 through problems like. Uh, being a sounding board and giving advice. And I think I have another person in the US, Jim Flaging, where um, both of them have been really great coaches where whenever I have those problems, I can go to them and they will give me the advice. And they will always say, hey, Peter, it's your company, you decide, but this is basically what I would would recommend. Uh, So they, they they keep empowering me to make the decisions and I can make the final decision, but they're great coaches, great sounding boards. Uh, Because if you don't have that as a, as a CEO, if you don't have sounding boards for people that you can kind of bounce sensitive things with, uh, it mm. becomes re- really, really hard. And I think I have that with, uh, with some of my directors in the board, but you also have peer CEOs in other companies that you can fall back onto because everyone that is in the same growth stage has a CEO in another startup that is going through the same things, similar problems, similar things. And uh, in the beginning, we, ha- we had lunches together with other CEOs um, during the week where we kind of chatted about the problems we were all facing and how one person kind of solved that. So I think having that kind of support group is, uh, is really important. 
Yeah, fantastic advice. And I know even within the SciRise Sci program, that's one of the benefits of having a cohort of founders, you know, where people are at a similar stage and having similar experiences, but also navigating them in different ways because just by nature we're, you know, we're all wired differently. And But the importance that comes from having that network of confidants and someone to chat to, it's, yeah. Yeah, and I think you, you need that for peers that are in the same growth stage, but you also need that into with CEOs that are in one or two stages up so yeah. that you can actually know, oh, what's coming? Like, what, what does it look like to be a Series A company? What does it look like to be a Series B company? Mm -hmm. So that you can learn from some of their mistakes because, like, I know that, that not having a putting product in place or not having put marketing in place or customer success in place in the beginning were some of the big uh, mistakes we've kind of made. And, uh, and, and if you kind of say that to the next generation saying, hey, you're young, you think customer success is not important right now because you're all focused on sales. However, it's probably the most important function in your company. So make sure you kind of start building and focusing on that as well. So I think that's why having, uh, having advisors or people that you know that are uh, a little bit ahead of you are, are important as well. Did you choose your advisors and, and peers by design? Did it happen just because of the networks you already had? Uh, no, it was, it, was, it was definitely by design. It was uh, Eddie, uh, I think I read an article in the news where he left Nuix. Uh, and I was mm. like, well, wait, wait a minute. This, per this person has built a cybersecurity company to about 100 million in revenue, keeping his headquarters in Sydney. He's probably not so busy because he just like resigned from the company. Maybe I should reach out to him. And I found a, a contact that I had in common with him and asked for uh, an introduction. And she introduced me to Eddie. And uh, by accident, he was living probably 10 kilometers away from my house. So we just started to have dinners. And like once a month, uh, I started to kind of get to know him and he got to know me. And I think that's kind of how it, how it all went. So it was literally by design. I was looking for a former operator that has built a cybersecurity company that has scaled globally. Um, mm -hmm. and it was a bit of luck as well. I love that story. I didn't actually know that that's how that happened, but yeah. um, very smart move on your part. <laughs> I think it was luck. I opened up a newspaper. I saw a picture in his face and I'm like, hmm, interesting. And, and I think I was just lucky that, that we had somebody in, in common that, that wanted to do the introduction and that Eddie was willing to kind of mm. spend his time with, with whatever a two-person or three-person startup uh, in, in Sydney. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, that was great. And I think my, my second advisor in the US, Jim, I think I was strategically placed to him next to a dinner. So it's somebody we knew in common uh, kind of was like, oh, Jim's a great guy. He knows all about AppSec in the industry. Peter has a really interesting startup. You know what? Let's organize a dinner and we'll put these people strategically next to each other. Like I still, I still think Perfect. today that's, that's what they've kind of done. They, they kind of, did, did match dating in, at RSA in the US uh, and, it, and it worked out great. Fantastic. Well, Peter, the way we like to wrap up this podcast is with a series of quick fire questions. Not everyone answers quickly, so you, you can take as much time as you like, but um, I will kick off. And these are just, these don't necessarily have to be related to Secure Code Warrior. They can be just, you know, life lessons as well. But first of all, what is your biggest failure? Uh, I think that's pretty obvious is that be, being blind for some of the mistakes of my co-founder and choosing the wrong co-founder. Okay, good one. Your greatest achievement? Um, I would say that today it's actually Secure Code Warrior. Like I would have never thought five years ago that we would be a global company with seven or eight offices around the world doing what we're doing and helping developers become better coders and, and, and delivering good code. I think, yeah, I think so far, that's probably one of my, uh, my greatest achievements next to kind of having a fantastic six-year-old daughter as well uh, and trying <laughs> to kind of give some of my values to her. I think those two are yeah. probably my two biggest achievements. Your favorite book? Well, the one that influenced me most is mm. I also have a... Uh, a, a distinct, uh, I wouldn't call it a hating, but I, a dislike for HR. And that, because, that comes because I, I grew up in big corporate companies where HR were basically policy pushers and they were mm. just 
not lovely people. Like they were, I just didn't like working with big corporate HR com companies. And I, I run into this book from Patty McCor. Uh, she, I think she ran uh, HR at Netflix and she wrote a book called Powerful. And I was like, you know what? I don't like HR, but let me read a book about this person because I heard a lot of great things about the Netflix culture. And I started reading that book and I'm like, God damn it, there's, there's another world there. There's, there's, there's HR people that are not like big corporates, that are not policy pushers, that are really trying to help the employees within the company. And I think mm. from that moment onwards, I was like, okay, I need to build a people and culture function that thinks like that. That thinks like it's not about pushing policies. It's not about kind of stopping people, restricting people, or protecting us from like the 1% what can go wrong. But it's about building a people function that can really help our staff, that can, that, can, that can make them feel better if they're in trouble, that can train them, that can basically make them better, and that we can kind of hire the best people. Um, so yeah, Pat, Patty McCore, powerful, has been, uh, has, has been a mind shift again for me uh, from, from bad HR to what, what really good, good HR looks like. Fantastic. I'll be sure to link that in the show notes as well so people can grab a copy. The next question, what is the startup you wish you'd founded? Ooh, that's a difficult one. Um, mm -hmm. Like, of course, that's a cute code word, but that's a cliche answer. But I think that I feel like the, the, I, I don't know whether it exists already, but my next startup needs to be something that that really has an impact on the world. Like, I, mm -hmm. I feel that cybersecurity, like, it's great. Like, I've We've run this company, like building, we're helping developers, but we, we still have a lot of big, big issues, whether, whether, it's, uh, whether it's wildlife that is running through the fires, the, the energy problems, the overpopulation. And, and then sometimes I look like people, like I look at people that are building startups that are helping those things that mm -hmm. are trying to kind of focus on that and thinking, well, if I ever do a next startup, because I don't know whether I will, but if I ever do, it needs to be something that solves a really big problem, water shortage or, or something like that, that really tries to help uh, us being better humans. So not only being better coders and better developers, but how can we be better humans for this planet? Mm, that's a great answer. Okay, we'll watch this space. I do believe you've got another startup in you. <laughs> well, just... <laughs> I've, I've always, my, my goal, my, my life plan when I was probably about 20 years old was, I was going to open up a restaurant when I was 35 because one of my passions is, is cooking and, and like my, my creativeness comes out when I'm kind of uh, making mm -hmm. meals. So I always wanted to start a restaurant. So I don't know which direction it's going to go in either a world changing <laughs> startup or, or maybe I'll just open up a, a, a restaurant where you can kind of go for dinner in a nice living room atmosphere on a Friday and Saturday night only and do it like that. I don't know. Let's see. Let's first, oh. let's first keep building Secure Code Warrior and then we'll Yes, see. yes. You work with your 50 million USD expansion first <laughs> and then we'll revisit the restaurant idea down the track. Exactly. I actually like that idea as well. Um, okay, and to wrap up, the best piece of advice you've ever received? So the, the best piece that I, that I received and I'm also giving to everyone is that wear your brand T-shirts everywhere you go. <laughs> um, some, somebody told me this uh, because you, you get two, two, two views on the situation somebody told me that you always need to wear your t-shirt because it's your brand it's your, mm -hmm. it's your team colors it represents who you are and then you had other people telling me hey you know what don't, don't invest money in swag like it's a waste of money like people don't wear it people don't kind of use it but I, but I think I, I took the first route and said I, I'm always going to wear swag like everything Wherever I go, when, whenever I go to Thai boxing or I go to a coffee shop or I do presentations or even podcasts or even yeah. on formal dinners, you will always see me with my brand in the middle of my chest. And it's because it's like, it's something that, that, that you're proud of, that you're kind of wearing. And everybody in the room, even if there's no name tags, they see your brand and they know, oh, that's your code warrior guy. I need to go and speak with him. And if you, if you have a blank t-shirt, nobody knows who you are. So mm -hmm. I've kind of used it as a, as a way in how to create brand awareness wherever I went. And I started seeing that my employees are doing the same. They're all wearing the SEW t-shirts, going to work, being on public transport, going to conferences, and it just creates a really good branding effect. And then we mm -hmm. said, well, you know what? Let's send our clients t-shirts. So every yeah. time they, they run tournaments, they win gamification, like 
they're, they're these developers that care about security, let's send them swag. And, and they're wearing the t-shirts as well, because for them, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's something to be proud of. And uh, so it's been, it's been a really uh, low-cost guerrilla marketing way saying, everybody just wear the t-shirts, wear the swag. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it worked great for us. That's fantastic. And also it's so doable. This is not a piece of advice that is hard to adhere to. It's quite easily done. And I agree. Like, I mean, I was going to mention the fact that no one can see you on this podcast, but you are wearing a T-shirt. I can, I can confirm. Yeah. Um, it's important. It's important to get your brand out there. And I love that it's, you know, it's important also because it's connected with pride, you know, taking pride in what you do. And, and that extends to the customers and clients as well. So great yeah. advice. And the, sec- the second benefit it has is that in the morning you get up, you don't have to think what I'm going to wear today. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. I wear my SCW t-shirts. Like, my wife actually has to, to remind me in the weekend, saying, hey, you're not meeting anyone. Wear something else. Like, <laughs> you wear this the whole week. Like, go, go and wear a shirt or something, something normal. Um, yeah, mix so, it uh, up. Yeah. <laughs> but du- during the week, it's great. Like, you, you, you don't have to make choices anymore what you wear. That's beautiful. Your startup uniform. Absolutely. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Just incredible as always to hear your story and get your advice for future founders or founders that are in earlier stage than you to really see, okay, well, how does, how does one become an overnight success? And I think we know that's not obviously not the case, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) you and the team to just be really proud of what you've built and also what you're giving back to the startup ecosystem. And we're always so appreciative of your words and time. So thank you again. No worries. Thank you very much, Chloe. And I must say, like, it's not, it's not all me building. Like, we ha- it's the co-founding team. And I, I kind mm-hmm. of pushing all of them to kind of give back because I think it's important to, uh, to provide the knowledge and experience to the next generation of, uh, of secure code warriors in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And what a team you've got. They are incredible. Awesome. Thanks very much, Chloe. Take care. Thanks, Peter. Peter and the entire co-founding team at Secure Code Warrior are incredibly generous with their time and their wise. Obviously a huge success story for Australian cybersecurity, but also a brand that lives its values in a really tangible way. I think anyone who's come in contact with the Secure Code Warrior team would feel that. You'll hear Eddie Shee come up in this episode a little bit. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Newix and actually was a guest on this podcast last year. So I'll link to that episode in the show notes. If you want to know more about Secure Code Warrior, visit securecodewarrior.com. And for more info on SciRise, head to SciRise.co. That's C-Y-R-I-S-E dot C-O. Catch you next time.